0: Lord, that is the great truth that you call us here every Sunday to remember and the busyness of our lives and in all of our, all the things that we run to for satisfaction and fulfillment and salvation, Lord. You always call us back in uh, the amazing ways that you are able to do that. Call us back to your grace and understanding that we've been saved by grace alone and that means that we are right with you, and that means that we can stay because you want us to be safe, Lord. I pray you would help us to see that just the essence of sin and grace and running in the chase as we look through this story, this great story, the Bible, Lord. Help us to understand um, the beauty of your grace for us in all of its multiple forms. Lord, so we pray that your Holy Spirit, Lord, would illuminate us to your word, that you would give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word, Lord, as you promise to beautify your afflicted ones. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We are doing, we have started last year, um, the pastor of First Presbyterian Church, Jerry Andrews, he told me once in a conversation that we had that he, every Lent he does a, a series through the, one of the minor prophets. Uh, and I just thought that was such a great idea because Lent, it's not something mandatory. Some some churches have gotten all crazy with it and made it a mandatory thing that you must do. It's not a mandatory season, but it is an, an opportunity for us to really like meditate on um, and prepare our hearts and to meditate as we approach uh, Holy Week, the reason why Good Friday was necessary, and even more, to deepen our appreciation and gratitude for the gospel. And so, the minor prophets have a, a good way of doing of doing that. And so, I thought last year we did Lamentations, which was really heavy. This year, I thought we'd uh, take uh, take the book of Jonah. Jonah is the is, uh, is a is a I think a fantastic book for this. It's a It's a miniature microcosm of the whole Bible story, as I hope you'll see today, Uh, and I hope it's going to prepare our hearts to understand Good Friday and understand um, what we have received in the resurrection. Amen? So let's uh, please stand, if you are able, out of respect for the reader, who is God. I am only the speaker here, so let's give our in uh, our attention to God's inerrant word. This is from Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And he went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare, He went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. And then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Arguably the best part of any movie is the chase scene. If you're watching a movie and there's no chase scene, you should probably just get up and leave and go find a movie with a chase scene. I'm thinking of Steve McQueen and Bullet, probably the quintessential, like opening up the, the history of the great chase scenes in American cinema where a GT Mustang fastback chased a black Ford a Dodge Charger around the streets of San Francisco at 110 miles an hour. Maybe I'm thinking about Heat where Robert De Niro and his bank crew are like running away from Al Pacino and the police who are chasing him through the city as they're shooting in behind them, trying to, trying to get away. And maybe one of the reasons Jonah is such a good story, maybe some, one of the reasons we're so attracted to the book of Jonah is because it's a great chase scene, pretty much from beginning to end. It's a big old chase scene. However, it's a chase scene it kind of turns our expectations upside down. Now, maybe when, you're thinking about, maybe when you're thinking about those great movies, you're thinking about yourself as being Al, uh, being, uh, Al Pacino and the police chasing the bad guys, or maybe uh, you know, you're thinking that you're Steve McQueen and the GT Fastback Mustang chasing the bad guys. And a lot of times in, in religion, in, in, in when we think about God, one of the big red flags of Man-made or pop culture religion is that we see the trajectory of the chase as being man trying to chase down God. Man has to somehow elevate himself or follow after God or he's constantly chasing God down in order to catch him and find him and be with him. But the book of Jonah completely turns that on its head and we see that the real trajectory, at least in in when it comes to God and to us, is that we're the runners and God's the chaser. We're not Al Pacino. You're not Al Pacino. You're De Niro, laying down suppressing fire behind you, trying to get away, while God is like right on your heels, chasing you at every step, setting up roadblocks and directing you to the desired end where he finally catches you that's what Christianity is. That's what makes Christianity so different from every other uh, religion. It's the big story of the Bible. It's not just the story of Jonah, but it's the overarching theme from the very beginning. People running, which is the essence of sin, and God chasing us down, which is the essence of grace. We run, we sin, God chases us. That's grace. And Jonah is such a great book to bring that out because that's the whole story. Jonah runs, God chases. Two big scenes, (laughs) and at the end, uh, there's so much that comes out of this book. There's so much that comes out of this book. One of the great things is that it makes real clear that that's the trajectory. So the big idea of this first part is this, is that whenever God contradicts what we know to be right, we run away, but grace runs faster still. That's the big idea that we're going to look at today. Whenever God contradicts what we know to be right, we run away, but God runs faster still. Let's look at that first part. When God contradicts what we know to be true. A couple of years ago, I got to hang out and, and uh, meet a guy named Sam Alberry, who I'm, uh, I was—I uh, I read his—he re- has written a book called "Is God Anti-Gay," which is, uh, I think, the best book to give people to help them understand the Christian sexual ethic and God's heart for everyone and what we really believe about sex and sexuality. Uh, and his book, I think, is, is the best to give people. I give it out all the time. But when we met, we got to meet, and he gave me his favorite book at the time, which was a book called The Plausibility Problem. It was written by his friend Ed Shaw. Uh, and the thesis of the book, the idea of the book, was that th- to ask gay and lesbian people to be single and celibate was far too high a cost. It wasn't even plausible. It wasn't a plausible thing. And the book... Uh, the book answered or, or attempted to answer that question in saying that it was it was plausible, uh, in fact. And so, you know, what happens is people, they look at that problem, that problem in particular, and they say, uh, that it's not plausible for anyone to be celibate and be single for a lifetime. And then the next step comes in, and we look at the problem through cultural filters, And looking at the problem through modern cultural filters, we say to ourselves, God would never ask anyone to sacrifice in that way. And therefore, the third step is, what we need is to take a fresh look at Scripture to find out what's really happening, to find out what God has really said about this. And that pattern, that pattern of doubting the plausibility of something, looking at it through cultural filters, and then deciding that we need a fresh look at Scripture is a process or a pattern or a progression that is literally as old as time. And also at the same time, it's as fresh as this morning. I mean, it's basically what Adam and Eve did, right? Adam and Eve, she looked at the plausibility of not eating from the tree of life. She looked at it through the cultural filters provided by Satan. It would provide all these things. Uh, And then she decided along with Satan that they needed a fresh look at Scripture. What did God really say? And they came to a different solution. And we do the same thing all the time. We do the same thing. It's the essence of running. Running isn't just like running in random. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. What I want you to see is that running always seems reasonable. Because that's what happens. We look at something that's not plausible, through our cultural filters, we decide that we need a fresh look, and we come to the answer that we desire, and that is the essence of a run, the essence of sin, and it all seems so reasonable. Look at what Jonah does. Verse, verse one through three, or verses one and two. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah as Aaron said, pretty clear right there, pretty direct. Word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now, the Assyrians, if you know anything about the ancient, Middle, ancient Near East, you know that it was a time of brutality and warfare and, and in the clash between kingdoms, it was brutal. If you look at the Old the, the stone reliefs of the cultures in that day and what they would do to each other it is shocking beyond belief. But the Assyrians, the Assyrians were extra evil even by ancient Near Eastern standards. The Assyrians were just like a special breed of people that really just went all in with being brutal uh, and cruel and mean-spirited, and just inventing all different kinds of ways to torture and, and cast fear into their enemies. They were, you know, we, we, what do we have, you know? We have maybe ISIS with their, the videos that they make of beheading people and the torturing videos that they produce in full color that they send into the West. Something, you know, akin to that. And me, and, me and Nisa have this, like, running... Kind of, kind of joke, kind of not joke, within our family when our kids are grown up and they're all in college, if we get old and like we're all in pain and we uh, you know we don't want to like just hang out, we're going to go and do like a mission to like Mosul or somewhere deep in like Syria and the Middle East where it's generally just basically a suicide mission, right? We just show up and be missionaries in the middle of isis controlled territory that's what that's what Jonah's thinking he's like. Can you imagine? I mean, any situation like that, a Jewish rabbi going into the Berlin in 1942 and calling upon them to repent, Us going, one of us going on a mission to the middle of ISIS-controlled territory right now and calling them to repent to the Christian God. What do you think would happen to you? Jonah gets that. He's like, this is a suicide mission. It is not plausible at all for me to go there. But not only that, maybe the most... Interesting part of this whole story is that Jonah, who who Jonah was, we know a little bit more about Jonah from outside the book of Jonah in 2 Kings. He was ministering in the northern kingdom of Israel at the same time as Amos and Hosea. Now, what's Amos famous for? Not the cookies. (laughs) Amos was famous for. (laughs) for his prophecy calling upon the injustices of the northern kingdom, specifically the evil king Jeroboam II. But what was Jonah doing at that time? We know from 2 Kings chapter 14, Jonah was Jeroboam II's close advisor. He was advising him, and he was advising him during a period of military campaigns and expansion. It was a time where they were actually had turned the tide a little bit on the Assyrians and retaken some borderlands. They'd retaken some land for them. This was a time not to go and proclaim anything to them. This was a time to crush them. Jonah was a hawk. He was like a political hawk. He would have been like the right-wing guy on Fox News saying, go in and nuke them now not the guy you would expect to go in uh, and preach to them so it was implausible it was a suicide mission Jonah looked it through the cultural filters of his day well these aren't people we're saving in any way shape or form these are people that need to be destroyed they're wicked they're evil beyond belief and we have them on the run so therefore, Jonah took a fresh look at God's word and decided that what he actually ought to do is go down to Joppa and find a boat to Tarshish. Jonah ran, and it seemed so reasonable. It seemed so reasonable. You know, the, one of the big problems with Jonah is there's so many applications we could pull out of it. It's you can kind of get a wash. What is this about? Is it about the church and? Our willingness to uh, minister to the people that we think are evil or outside of God's reach or the untouchables, the unsavables—is this about pastors? About and are um, like creating our churches that are so ingrown that we care less about the people that are right outside our doors? Is this about racism? Is this about like racial hatred of other groups? I mean, all of those things are true. All of those things are true, and we're going to bring those out as we go uh, through the book. But let me tell you one story that I think sums it all up and, and, and gives us the application that we're really, that we need to see here, and that's this. I, we had some friends from New Life Escondido when we planted our church that were involved with this church plant at the very beginning, um, Brian and Jeannie Freeman. Her dad, Jeannie Freeman's dad, was a, uh, had been a missionary. She actually grew up on the mission field. And when we were getting ready to plant this church, he came to me uh, and he sat me down and he's like, I want to tell you a story. He's like, you know, you know, you know a lot about our story. We were we were selected to become missionaries to go to Papua New Guinea and bring the gospel to a completely unreached people group. I mean, people that had never, never heard the gospel, never been reached by the gospel whatsoever. Uh, natives that live in long that lived in long houses in the backwoods of Papua New Guinea. Uh, and he was we prepared for it, they trained for it, they got ready for it, they got their, you know, started learning language skills so that they could go and learn the language and they had a plan as how they were gonna take it out. He, his wife, his baby daughter, they had a big party for them, sending them off, praising God for, you know, that God had raised them up to send them out and they were going out to, to do God's work and they got on the plane with everybody cheering and they said, George and his wife and Jeannie, they got on the plane and they flew, and they had a connector flight somewhere, where they to get off the plane and go on to the other plane. And he said, as he was walking off the plane, he saw this this bank of payphones. Back in the day, nobody had cell phones. And he said he just broke down and said, "I can't do this. This is crazy. We're going to get killed. Uh, and if we don't get killed, we're going to get diseases." If we don't get diseases, we're going to waste years of our life trying to communicate with, to a people we don't even know their language. We don't even know if we can learn their language. We're going to spend our lives in the jungle for nothing. And he went to the pay phones and he put the quarter in and he went to make the phone call back to his, the people at his church to say, hey, we're going to turn around. We can't do it. And he sat me down and he said, Rob, as you're planning this church, there's gonna come a time when you walk by and you see a bank of pay phones. <laughs> and everything is gonna to scream to you, you're gonna to wanna to put a quarter in that pay phone and call the whole thing off. And he's all, don't do it. He saw. I, I got, they, they talked some reason into me. I hung up the phone, we got on the plane, and they went to Papua New Guinea and they brought the gospel to this people and the entire tribe became Christian within a matter of years. And then that tribe began sending missionaries to the other tribes within walking distance of their huts. And he said to me, Ben, he's like, I was, conv- I, I was convinced that it was just completely undoable that I couldn't do this and, and I almost missed it. I almost missed it. And that's what I want our, our big, the takeaway to be from this first part. That I don't know what God is calling you to do. That I have no idea you know, what he may be calling you to do. He may be calling you to go and invite those neighbors to dinner. He might be talking to you about talking to some people at work or you're afraid they're going to ridicule you. Maybe it's the project that you're supposed to start doing and get done. Maybe it's just stopping a bunch of stuff and focusing on him. I have no idea what God is pulling on your heart to do. But what I do know is that you don't want to miss it. I don't care how scary it is. I don't care how difficult it is, how implausible it seems. God has clearly told you to do it. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. Second thing. We run away when God contradicts what we know to be true. We run away. One of my favorite parts of the Bible are the the other pro I call them the other proverbs, not the proverb, not the book of Proverbs, the wise saying, but kind of scattered throughout the Bible. There's these like 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 these ironic cultural sayings that developed in ancient Israel that they said, in the, and it became a proverb in Israel. For example, when Saul, King Saul, went and prophesied, uh, he he went, he went down to where the prophets were, the Spirit of the Lord came over him, and he prophesied, and it was just so unlikely. It was just so ironic and strange that someone like Saul would actually prophesy that the Bible, the, the, the book says, and so it became a proverb in Israel. Is Saul also among the prophets? And what, what that meant was that whenever something like ironic or crazy happened, like somebody did something that they should no way ever be part of, people would say, is Saul also among the prophets? Like if I had like a, you know, a bunch of ancient Near Eastern Jewish relatives, when I became a pastor, they would have said, is Saul also among the prophets? It would have been in, in disbelief. And one of my favorite ironic cultural prophet, or, uh, proverbs that, that I use all the time comes from the Jesus Storybook Bible and the story of Jonah. And as, she, as Sally Lloyd-Jones tells it, she goes, she says, you know, Jonah went down to Joppa. He went to the ticket booth and he said, I'd like one ticket to not Nineveh, please. <laughs> it's one of my favorite sayings. Whenever I, there's something that I really, really don't want to do, especially if it's something... that that I'm pretty sure God wants me to do, but I really, really don't want to do it, I say, I'd like one ticket to not Nineveh, please. It's become a proverb for me and for our house. And Jonah is the originator of this proverb. Let's look at what he does in verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. And so he paid the fare. And he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. And nobody knows exactly where Tarshish is. It's all kind of fighting about it. Maybe it's in Spain. Maybe it's Britain. Maybe it's all the way down on the coast of Africa. We know it was a known city. We know that they got gold and silver and exotic animals and Wealth and riches came from the ships that went to Tarshish. What we all, what we do know, whether it was Spain or Britain, the idea, the main point, uh, you know, is that it was dramatically as far as possible in the other direction. It was away from the presence of the Lord. Nineveh, 600 miles to the east. Spain, 2,200 miles to the west. And that's the big idea. God said, go this way. And Jonah said, I'm going that way, as far as I possibly can. And in Alcoholics Anonymous culture, we have this term called a geographical, which means basically that your life completely is falling apart. And so what you do is you pick up everything and you move to another city or another location to get a fresh start. So hopefully you can start over and things will be better and the problem with that is is there's another saying that we use that says wherever you go there you are <laughs> meaning that when you do that you take the problem with you and so we don't you know we don't know where the geographical location of tarshish is uh, and i think that's kind of helpful because what it tells us is that when we run away from god sometimes you may do a geographical sometimes you may Leave and go somewhere else, but most of the time, the destinations aren't geographical destinations, there's something else. You know what it is. I don't know what it is. I know what mine are. I know what mine are. I know that whenever I head down to Joppa to pay my fare, Satan's got a whole line of boats on the wharf, ready to take me to my destination. I've got some favorites, right? You know, Maybe you're anger and angry and, and it, your destination is self-righteousness. There's gonna be a boat headed to self-righteousness waiting for you right there. Maybe you're angry and anxious and afraid and it triggers events from your earlier youth and your destination is pornography or sexual addiction. There's always a boat on the wharf waiting for that. That's one of the things that Satan does best. It's part of the overall plan is to create doubt, give you false cultural filters and narratives to look at things through, cause you to get to that point where you get a fresh look at the word of God or not. Uh, And then at the end of that, well a third step not the very end third step is to present that boat to take you to the destination that you think is going to save you fourth step is when you get there he looks at you and says a real christian wouldn't do that it's all part of the confusion and the attack as matt day would say it's a trap yeah. <laughs> And sometimes when you're reading text and you're getting ready for a sermon, there's a little phrase that God paints it like a target, and you just can't get it out of your mind. And I kept reading this story, and I kept stopping, whatever it said, and Jonah paid his fare. And I was like, what is, why are you trying to tell me, God? Well, I started, like, researching ancient sea travel, and I realized that for an ancient reader who was reading this story, you know... In Jonah's mind, right, this is completely reasonable. The run is always reasonable. But to the ancient reader, they're like, well, wait a minute. He's going to take a ship to Spain from Joppa? First of all, that's going to cost a lot, a lot of money. That's going to be crazy expensive. But even more than that, that's crazy dangerous. That's arguably way more dangerous than going and preaching in Nineveh. I mean, ship travel was notoriously unreliable. And a ship going to Tarshish, I mean, the Bible's full of stories of ships from Tarshish at the bottom of the ocean. And so, you know, an ancient Hebrew would be reading this thinking, all right, say so you're going to go to Spain? You're going to go to Tarshish? You're going to pay your fare to go to Tarshish? And that doesn't sound very reasonable at all. And I think that brings out the fact that whatever your boat is and your destination is, when you, like, look at it, especially your past excursions, what you thought it was so reasonable to do, usually, when, in retrospect, you look back on it, and you're like, well, that wasn't really very reasonable at all. It was expensive. Man, I paid my fare to get on that boat. Whether it was money, time, emotional cost, Despair, whatever it was, I guarantee you paid your fare to get on that boat. And it might have been super expensive. And so, and it's extra unreasonable because it was dangerous, it was expensive, and it was for nothing. If I had a choice between dangerous and expensive for the glory of God and dangerous and expensive for nothing, I'm going to choose dangerous and expensive for the glory of God. That's way more reasonable, no matter what the devil may be trying to tell you. And so I would suggest, I'm going to encourage you all to adopt my proverb. Adopt my one ticket to not Nineveh, please. And why? Because every time when you say it, you're going to catch yourself. Especially if you like use it when you, something you know God is wanting to do, but you don't want to do it, and if you say to yourself, I'd like one ticket to Not Nineveh, please. You can go, Oh, I remember this story. I remember this story. Uh, and you can catch yourself, Lord willing. But we know the truth, right? You're not going to catch yourself every time. If only it was so easy. We could just catch ourselves and we could just say, one minute, one ticket to not Nineveh, please, and go, oh my gosh, what was I going to do? You know, a bunch of times I'll say, at the end of it, I'll be like, oh yeah, one ticket to not Nineveh, please. <laughs> so what does that mean? What does it, What does it mean for us? What does God do? What does God do for his kids who don't stay? <laughs> and that's the reality. The reality is that you're not just... A sinner, you're a flight risk. You, you know, you, you really shouldn't even be out on bail. <laughs> but we've been given Christ's righteousness. We've been forgiven our sins, and God loves us. And God, because of that, when God kids run, he doesn't punish them. What does he do? He chases. And that's the last part. Grace runs faster still. I don't know why this is true, but one of my most poignant memories from my final excursion on uh, the on the SS drug addiction, <laughs> one of the stories I remember from that last uh, last trip on that boat was sitting on the steps of the Days Inn in Mission Valley, and I'd been dropped off. I was supposed to meet people there who were going to pick me up but I'd been dropped off at the wrong Days Inn. I was supposed to be at a Days Inn (laughs) off a Waring Road. And I was sitting there on the steps, not sure what I was going to do. And I remember bargaining with God, asking God, saying, look, if you will give me two more weeks of just uninterrupted fun, because that was super fun, sitting on the steps of the Days Inn in Mission Valley, uh, if you give me two more weeks of uninterrupted fun, I promise I'm going to go to rehab and I'll, I'll stop. Because what, why, was I, why was I bargaining with God at that point? Because ultimately, I wasn't afraid of the cops. I wasn't afraid of gangsters. I wasn't afraid of other drug dealers. I was afraid of the God of the storm. Because I knew eventually he was going to start hurling things In my path. (laughs) And that's what the that's the maybe the best line of the whole this whole this whole section. Listen, four and six. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea, and the ship threatened to break up, and then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner parts of the ship and had laid down, and he was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God, and perhaps the God will give us thought that we may not perish. (laughs) The chase in this isn't just the storm. It actually starts earlier than that, right? There's this whole picture of the descent of Jonah. He goes down to Joppa. He goes down into the bowels of the ship, and we all know where the story ends, right? As Jonah is descending, and the chase scene starts prior, really to the storm. He's in the hold of the ship, fast asleep before the storm starts. And the Hebrew, a lot of people think, and I think it's true, the Hebrew is not. He's not just sleeping. He's in a like deep hypnotic the kind of sleep that when you're like when you're afraid to wake up kind of sleep because you're so anxious or depressed big disclaimer here biochemical depression is a real thing that needs to be treated with real medicine however there's also can be a depression that settles upon you in a sense of frustration and anxiety when you know you're actively working against what God's trying to do. And you can even exacerbate your own biochemical condition. I know. And Jonah is asleep in the hold of the ship. And then the storm, God hurls the storm into the sea, just like just throwing obstacles in his path, you know, that's what I was afraid of. The guy was going to throw the police and might hurl the police in front of my path or hurl some tragedy or event or injury or Lord knows what. And then finally, there's the, the, the pagan captain waking him up, and the words that the pagan captain uses are the same words that God uses to Jonah at the beginning of the story. Arise, call out to the people of Nineveh. And now the captain is saying, arise, Call out to your God. John is literally being woken up with this pagan captain. He hates pagans. He's trying to get away from them. And in the irony of the situation, God is calling him to repentance through the mouth of the pagan, who he is now going to be forced to go upstairs and save. So he didn't really get out of anything. But all of that is God's listen. If you were looking at me from the outside as I sat on the steps of the days in. Especially outside the faith, and you were looking at that period of time in my life, you might reasonably say to yourself, I think God's trying to kill him. <laughs> and that's what I thought. And so when, the, when, when God is hurling things in your path and you know that's true, sometimes my first response is, God's trying to kill me, or God is punishing me, or maybe God's just not even here anymore. And he's just left me, just whatever happens to me. He's removed his protection. And that's actually kind of true. Not totally. But my typical response is to think this is God's punishment of me. Or God has abandoned me. what I want you to see is that, you know, it might have looked like God was trying to kill me, but he wasn't. Absolutely not. I mean, as I look back on that situation, I would never want to live through that stuff again, ever. Praise God. I hope I never do. Uh, But I can look back at it and say, you know, man, God did exactly what he needed to do to slow me down and make me quit, make me tap out so he could bring me home. We have a friend who, who used to say, like on fishing reels, on fishing, deep sea fishing reels, you can set the drag, which sets the, how hard it is to draw the line out so that the fish runs, it won't break the line, but the fish will run until it gets tired. It's not too tight so the line will break or too loose so the fish can run it out. But if you set that drag just right, it'll be just enough tension for that fish to swim, tire itself out, and then God, or you, reel him in. And our friend used to say, God knows how to set that drag just right. And that's what he did for me. That's what he's doing for Jonah. Jonah. And if you think God is trying to punish you right now, if you're in the storm, if there's some things being hurled at you, I want you to consider that maybe God is not punishing you, God has not abandoned you, but those very obstacles in your way is the manifestation of God's grace in your life. God, the God of the storm is the God of grace. But that leaves a, a big question. We'll close with this. <clears throat> how is that even possible? How is it even possible for God? Why, why would God chase anyone down? How could he even, how could he chase us down? How is that situation even tenable? How can a holy God even chase down sinners? Why isn't he obligated to incinerate us? Or obligated to judge us? Well, and the reason is, is this, it, You know, in some ways, as we go through this book, we're going to see Jonah uh, models Jesus for us in positive ways. But for the most part, Jonah is the bad prophet. He's the anti-prophet. Jonah is like the Harvey Keitel of the prophetic universe. He's the bad prophet. Uh, in that we can see the difference between Jonah the prophet, who is told to go into the enemy citadel and refuses to go. The contrast is of Jesus, who is told by the Father to go into the enemy city and proclaim the gospel, and he goes, and it's joyous for him. He rejoices in going, even though he knows it's going to. That when he comes, and when God comes and lives among his creatures our natural response will be to try and murder him. Even though he knows that to be true, he still undergoes all the suffering of coming and being one of us so that he can pay the price for our sins on the cross and give us his righteousness so that we can be free of judgment so that when we run as God's kids, he doesn't have to punish us. Instead, he can chase us down and bring us home. And that's what he does for us. And we're gonna see more and more of that as we go through the book, amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus, we thank you. Well, we thank you that your word tells us the truth. And you tell us the truth not because, you tell us the truth because you love us, Lord. You tell us the truth about us and the natural tendencies of our fallen hearts. Our tendency is to run away from you. And then to double that, our tendency is that once we've been destroyed by our sin, our tendency is to run and hide from you at the end of that. But your word tells us that the essence of grace is chasing. The essence of grace is you chasing your people down and bringing salvation to us. And so we thank you that Jesus came and became a man. Thank you that you brought salvation to us. And we pray that as we meditate on that truth and on the gospel, Lord, as we internalize the reality of the gospel, you would help us to not run. You would help us to see that true joy and satisfaction is really found with you. And that when we do sin, that you are always chasing us and we can always... We don't ever have to leave your side, Lord. We never have to leave your presence because of what Jesus has done for us. So we thank you for that. We praise you. We pray you would help us to meditate on that as we get ready to approach your table. In Jesus' name, amen.